Hey everyone, you're listening to the 10-7 Podcast, where we get together every fortnight, and sometimes more often, to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. My guest today is Danny Sigelman, artist, DJ, drummer, author, radio host, producer, drum instructor. Danny's work with photographer Daniel Corrigan on the book Heyday, 35 Years of Music in Minneapolis, is a look back at more than three decades of music in Minneapolis through the lens of one of the most prolific and renowned photographers on the scene. So I'm looking forward to talking to Danny about that. Danny's also written for the City Pages, Star Tribune, and Vitamin, worked for KFAI, NPR, Secret Stash Records, and the way we know each other is through my wife's time at the Electric Fetus Records in downtown Minneapolis. Danny, it's great to have you on. Oh, great to be here. You know, those were really the days uh, at the Electric Fetus. Is that how you guys met? That's how we met. That's yeah. how we met. I walked in for some jungle and drum and bass and walked out with an email address. Oh, there you go. No, those were really great times. And I think of it as kind of the golden age of the CD during that those times. Because people were still buying CDs, like, mass quantities, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And uh, it's funny to think about now, because it's definitely a different animal in terms of, like, the music business and the scene. But, uh, I mean, that was that was such an amazing time, because we... We were definitely considered one of the cooler places uh, in, in, in the Midwest in terms of like music and where stuff would break, I mean, in, in our store and gain traction uh, elsewhere. Uh, and so we were real, really catered to uh, by the industry. Anything we wanted, uh, I'm sure you've heard stories. <laughs> I've um, heard many stories, but it, but, yes. <laughs> I mean, in, in terms, you know, the joke was we are promo sexuals because we would get everything we wanted music wise for free. I mean, it's right. really not it's not a, it's not the type of job you do to make a living. It's it's more about the money you don't have to spend on what you're passionate about, which is um, music and going to see and hear so much music. So that was a really fun time. I don't know that people are catered to the way. Uh, we were back then with uh, with all the freebies. <laughs> yeah, I remember Susie used to used to have promos up to Wazoo that she would bring home, and not just that, but access to all the local shows. Like you yep. wanted to get on the on the guest list at First Avenue because there was some mm -hmm. show you forgot to buy tickets to. Like, yeah, that was easy. It was easy stuff. Yeah, it was really fun, and I mean, I I was just talking about this the other day with somebody. I mean, this is this is during the time. Um, that you know the targets and the best buys were really trying to gain traction uh, with music and 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 trying to wipe out all the independent stores essentially, and I mean you know you could get really into that story. It's really what kind of I feel um, made made a better case for downloading because the labels were just dropping so much money on on these sort of big box retailers. And then we were kind of like the, the the little pilot fish that would actually take advantage of the cool stuff, uh, and the labels really respected us for that because we actually cared about the music. I remember seeing the band Coldplay playing at First Avenue. This was the first time they ever played in the Twin Cities, to to give you an idea of when this happened. But uh, they were playing at First Avenue, 
We were wined and dined by the record label. Here's our new band. You've heard all about them. That you know, this is mm-hmm. what a, what an amazing opportunity to see them in this context. And I was standing next to the person that you know was the music buyer for like Best Buy. And I turned to her and I said, "Oh man, you must be so excited! Isn't this cool?" And she just kind of like eye rolled and was like, "Yeah, I guess," <laughs> you know. And yeah. and and then out comes Coldplay, and it's almost like she couldn't even be bothered with the music. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm, I'm talking about Coldplay. Like I'm not even that excited now about them. But like at the time, it was like there was a lot of energy, and it, it kind of felt like the industry was really kind of. Um, catering to the people that just didn't have the passion necessarily to realize that they were in a really amazing position to 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 see a band like that at the time um so it was all really topsy-turvy and upside down and and i took full advantage of it any way i could really um and uh yeah that that was a, a really fun era i feel like it was the last bastion of uh, of music retail uh, the way it w- had been for so long, and I mean, I I remember when Napster came around and all these same label people were freaking out. Well, we were like, well, why have you been shoveling so much money towards the big box stores now that the music is up? You know, I, I I remember thinking, why have they been fostering this sort of trend so much now that? People don't have to pay for it at all. Uh, the rug's really being pulled out from under them, and they didn't really know what to do. Um, and 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 so, you know, realizing that, it really kind of opened our eyes into, you know, the way probably things are now. Yeah, it, it's been 20 years when you think about it. I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking about the late 90s, 1999 through 2002 to through, through 2005 when CDs were just being sold by the hundreds of thousands from all these stores and scaling through the big box stores. And then, you know, Apple creates that iPod and a thousand songs in your pocket all of a sudden, and that's a big threat. You're Danny Siegelman. You love music. I I love music. You've made yourself a career out of music, doing all kinds of things in the music industry, and that's that's what I that's what I want to try to get to. Sure. Bef- before we get to that, I just want to say, wow, things have really changed in the music industry in the last twenty years compared yeah. to the like the electric fetus is now, you know, gone through this. No CDs are not as popular as they were. They no. kind of went out, but now vinyl's back and back big time, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean. I think vinyl uh, is, the way I kind of think of it is like, you know, people um, collect antique chairs and, and you might spend a lot of money on a, ch- on a, on a really nice antique chair um, w- when you could really just buy a really cheap brand new one. I, I kind of feel like the music con- connoisseur tends to kind of like the old vintage style of listening to music and are willing mm-hmm. to invest in that because, you know, something smaller and plastic or something that doesn't even exist doesn't really satisfy that urge. No. I can't say that vinyl... I, I, I could probably guess that vinyl hasn't, like, filled the gap that that the lack of CD sales. The boutiques, like, you know, the, the kind of boutique stores like Electric Fetus are able to serve th- that, that type of, um, you know, listener. 
I don't know that that necessarily will sustain so many stores the way it had for so long, but now you're no. noticing that the chains don't really have a piece of that because they're not going to be able to sell the numbers on something the way they maybe would need to. to I mean, I, I've gone to Target and I've seen they have like five records for sale and that's really about it, you know? Um, and, and, and whereas before they were really um, fighting tooth and nail for that, the indie stores, and of which there are a lot in the Twin Cities, um, have kind of muscled through it. And and so you you go to a shop like Roadrunner Records, where I actually uh, also used to work at one point in time. You know, you can sell a really cool old uh, vintage record that might not have had that many pressings of for a lot of money, just like you could a, a vintage chair mid-century modern design and that kind of thing. Um, so it's interesting. I don't think there's one way to do anything, and I, I think that's kind of the beauty of it. I, I, I hope that ultimately the artists uh, sort of benefit, and it's really kind of given the, the power back to the artists to generate what they do and how they present themselves, because there isn't that uh, ability to do it through you know a label like maybe there used to be. Yeah. Um, but then again, I don't. I don't necessarily know what anything is anymore. So, <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you. <laughs> I mean, I saw. So I saw who won the Grammys, and I, I maybe knew who like two of them were. So I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I think people's listening habits as they get into music is probably really different than how it was when I was a kid, and you know that's okay. I, I'm not the type of person. Uh, to really kind of like judge what people listen to and what they like and how they get to it. I just hope people find it and, and enjoy themselves as much as I always have um, through the years. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I got into music at a very, very, like literally like as a newborn. My, my, my dad was in radio uh, when I was growing, oh really? Yeah, Th that's what that's what I was going to ask you about. Is like, yeah, I know you studied at the U of M, but when where did you get into music? Like, what are your what are your earliest memories of of music? Well, we can go really far back. I mean, before I was at the Electric Fetus, I worked at the university and helped start the student station Radio K. Oh, really? That was. Uh, my outlet that was kind of my education i i was an art major in college and i you know i still make art and i i, I still consider myself an artist but having the opportunity to volunteer at the radio station and make so many connections with um people in bands and and uh, art and, and and labels and putting together a show every day and putting on concerts and promoting shows for the venues in town. I mean, that was truly my education. And, and, and that really stemmed um, out of what I learned as a, as a, a child, uh, you know, when my dad was in radio. I came up, uh, I was originally born in Minnesota, but we moved around the country a little bit. As much as he was involved in radio, he wasn't necessarily a DJ, but um, we, we, you know, I, I was surrounded by that from a very young age, and I, I would say that I got, I, got, I got used to getting free records at a very young age. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the Electric Fetus was a natural extension of, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, of all of that. I mean, I did so much uh, around town at the time. I was playing in two bands when I was in college, and, and eventually somebody, when I did graduate... Uh, right away, somebody said, oh, there's a perfect job for you at the Electric Fetus. Um, 
And, and what I was doing at the Electric Fetus was actually working in the one-stop. So I, I worked in music distribution. So what, mm-hmm. what we were doing, and, and it was a, a long tradition at the Fetus of uh, warehousing the music and, and then doing, selling it wholesale to other stores in the area. And that gave them a better relationship with the major labels, which is why the labels really loved us, because we would be able to sell the you know, one or two copies of a new release to the mom and pop shop up in, um, you know, wherever, New Ulm or, you know, like the uh, Hibbing, yeah, the small towns. Hibbing or whatever, They wouldn't be able to have, be able to buy direct from the label because they would maybe only need a couple copies um, at a time. And, uh, and, and, And so that, again, that's really how we would help these labels kind of break stuff. So, you know... We were doing a lot of work for them. I mean, I'd send, I'd send posters and I'd send all their stuff with with the orders that they were making uh, through the one stop. And then at the same time, uh, as uh, it became easier for bands and artists to make their own CDs, we would um, also sell the local music to all the stores out state, but also in town. So you had like your uh, applause or cheapo. Um, even mm-hmm. e- even Best Buy was buying the consignment stuff that uh, we were selling, and, and and so in that regard, we were kind of a distributor for all the local bands in town. And as certain local bands, uh, one one of them at the time were the Rhyme Sayers uh, record label. Um, huh. You know, before you may have heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, they, they you know as their popularity started to increase, we were one of the only distributors that had their stuff. So I was actually selling a lot of the local music to the chains. Uh, that we were competing against, but also helping uh, all the my you know helping the musicians in town get their records in some of those stores in some of those towns where all they had was a Best Buy uh, uh, for a music store. So I mean that was that was super cool, and I mean it was just really fun and rewarding. I mean I was just getting it from all directions, and I, I think what I learned as a child and in, in, in being in radio and um, is 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 sort of the. Uh, the the joy and being able to share music with people, but also kind of help musicians and artists along the way. You were at the Electric Fetus for quite a while, for about four or five years, and mm-hmm. then you moved on and became a DJ at the Current. Yeah, what, what was that like? Yeah, that was that was uh, fun. I mean, it was really interesting at the time. I mean, this was at the very beginning of uh of when it started, uh, Minnesota Public Radio. I don't even remember the year offhand. <laughs> 2006 maybe 2005 something like that i remember it being that like 15 years ago yeah i think they did just celebrate their 15th i mean at the time i was an overnight sub i kind of got a real rude awakening in terms of how you know kind of competitive the radio business is a little bit Mm -hmm. to be honest you know it, it it hadn't really taken off when i was there so there was a lot of um sort of anxiety about how to what to do and how to make it sound being the overnight DJ and 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 working part time it didn't really allow me to kind of like I mean I was whenever I was working I was the only one in the building sometimes you know mm-hmm. um and and so I don't feel like I really got uh recognized or you know I wasn't necessarily a part of the machine in in what I thought would be the best way to go about what we were doing and there was kind of a lot of back and forth and eventually as kind of the honeymoon ended for the radio station they really kind of tightened the reins and I I found myself having you know 
a, a show that I'd kind of helped build at, in terms of like the weekend overnights um, start to be programmed for me. And I'd be up all night listening to music I didn't necessarily feel was, you know, I had to take direction. Mm -hmm. and, and not that I, not that I can't handle taking direction, but if, if nobody's really listening to my input and I'm the one having to, to go through it. Um, What's the point? Uh, yeah, I didn't really enjoy it at, at a certain point, and I, and I started recognizing how competitive a lot of the personalities were. And to be honest, I kind of, I mean, it, it sounds kind of uh, presumptuous, or, or it, it sounds a little, uh, it, it might sound a little snotty, but I kind of thought I was a better DJ than, than some of the people that were full-timers. So, um, you know, having, having, to, yeah. having to wait for somebody else to get sick or, you know, to really be able to be on during the day and shine and, and make a case for myself, I just didn't see those opportunities. And as soon as my shift started getting programmed for me, I'm just like, well, why am I staying overnight here? I mean, I still had to work day jobs the next day sometimes. It just didn't really work for me, and it, I, I can't say it was very uh, sanctimonious when I left, but ultimately, you know, something came along where I um, was asked to be a pop music DJ in Beijing, China in, in 2009, so, <laughs> yeah. China, like, that's a pretty big step from, you know, St. Paul and working for The Current. Now, all of a sudden, you're in Beijing, and uh, do you do you speak Mandarin? Well, you know, you know, Beijing isn't as uh, wild as downtown St. Paul is. Um, I, I can speak. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I can. Uh, I can. Uh, I can speak uh, some Mandarin. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty wild story. This was due to a connection at Minnesota Public Radio. Uh, the the DJ Mindy Ratner uh, is a classical music DJ. I believe she's one of the first women to to be hired at NPR. Um, and uh, she had done a similar job in Beijing uh, years before as a classical music DJ. And and the idea is that the Chinese government's trying to open up to the world and and hiring Westerners to come over and sort of like be uh, 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 kind of be ambassadors for the culture and 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 mm -hmm. she called me one day this was long this was a few months after I'd left the current and she said you know you remember how I used to talk about uh, China all the time and and uh, you know <laughs> they, they asked me if I knew anybody and I thought of you would you be interested in 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 doing this and I I was kind of like speechless and uh, I, I I remember I you know, I typed up my resume and I kind of, you know, made a nice cover letter and I sent it over there and like literally about 20 minutes later, they were like, okay, you got the job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that, that, that was before I realized when I got over there kind of how low the bar really was. So, you know, I, oh, <laughs> I, I, I take it with a grain of salt. I mean, it was a very weird experience. Um, they really tout themselves as uh the BBC of China, um, but uh, it's, I don't think anybody there actually knows what the BBC is, so, really? uh, uh, I mean, I worked for the, Chi I worked for the Chinese government, I worked for the, oh, wow. I, all, all my bosses were Communist Party bosses, you know, uh, I, I had, I had very weird situations where uh, I was given a lot of power uh, by people who have more power than you could imagine, and uh, I, I I got away with quite a bit actually. So, in terms of being an artist, I I'm always uh, 
thinking about my own creative expression, and this was just the penultimate opportunity for me to kind of become a, a character, but also to kind of, you know, fuck with people uh, with, yeah, without yeah. them realizing it. So you get you get there you mm-hmm. get there and like how do you find your how do you find an apartment where do you live is that all prearranged like what what does that commute look like well it was scary i mean this was a long time ago before smartphones and everything and uh i got there and they they put me through this rigorous like medical examination which was super yeah what? it was super weird i mean we i i got there and uh we drove like 45 minutes out of town to this hospital and like they put all these, I can't imagine what it's like now. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that was part of it. But then I eventually, uh, you know, they have people that, uh, are kind of your, um, chaperones, if you will. And, and, Mm. and, you know, they helped me get a phone and they helped me deal with the lease that I was going to sign. I mean, they provided me a place to live, but I, I, you know, I still had to sign a lease and pay rent. Um, but, uh, you know, being able to kind of walk me through that was helpful. And, and, and I, I worked, uh, maybe 50 feet from where I was living. It was kind of a little hotel that they had for all the foreigners. The company, um, China Radio International, who, who um, you know, uh, I was working for, they hire people from, like, something like 30 to 40 different countries to do programming in their own languages, and the idea is that this programming gets on the air in China, but also gets distributed somehow uh, around the world. Uh, so th- this is uh, somebody who might speak Farsi, having their program broadcast from China uh, in Iran or, or in Australia. Uh, um, so there, were, there was an English-speaking department that I worked for that had, you know, Canadians and Australians and, and English and South Africans. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was wild at first. It, took, it was definitely like, you know, uh, uh, I had to take a giant leap. Once I found my footing there, I, I realized the 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 cultural differences and and the things that I can kind of push a little bit and still get away with or but also kind of be really mindful to 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 people's lives and the way they operate and their responsibilities but i mean there's so many quirky aspects to chinese culture that uh you, you when 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 i imagined being there i thought there would be uh you know the the Mao Zedong guy behind me with a cane hitting me whenever I, you know, whatever played a weird record, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like my, 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 my first interaction with my boss who I was just petrified by, uh, she had a bunch of us out for dinner and this was like a, you know, maybe a month after I'd been there and I, I was sitting next to her and I asked her, you know, what do you think? How's things been going? You know, have you enjoyed the show we've been doing and da, 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 da. And and this is the woman that's in charge of the English department, and she said, "Well, I don't know. I I, I never listened to your show." <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh! <laughs> and, and she said, "Nobody's ever said anything, so I guess you're doing a great job." <laughs> I was just like, yeah. Wow. How long How long was the show? And and what did you play music? Yeah, we played music. I I did bring a hard drive over, and I kind of uploaded a bunch of files of cool stuff that I I I, I wanted to play. And I had a co-host who was Chinese, Lu. Uh, and she, she, she was a great friend, and uh, the the whole premise of the show was kind of more about the English language for people to listen to. Because my show was actually broadcast in Beijing, you know, it was kind of there to provide people the ability to hear programming in English 
to potentially mm. to potentially you know be able to speak English better if they were studying. So I think a lot of the Chinese that I know that a lot of taxi drivers listen to our radio station religiously because they're they're really wanting to be able to communicate with uh, uh, English yeah. speakers that they might be driving around. Um, and there was more yeah, a handful of times I would be in the cab and our radio program would be on the air. And, you know, one of my friends would tell the cab driver, like, that's the guy on the radio. And they'd kind of turn around and they'd hear my voice and they just didn't understand how that could even happen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And you were there for about a year? And yeah. And was it yeah. like a fixed contract and then you were coming home or... Yeah, it was a year contract, and it was the type of thing, like, I still had an apartment here, and I had my girlfriend here, and my family, you know, I, 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 it happened so quickly that I ended up going over there, I didn't necessarily see myself um, staying longer than a year, although I definitely could have, I mean, they did appreciate me, so, I mean... But but you know everything outside of the radio station too was an adventure and 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 um, you know that was an experience I I, I never thought I would ever have uh, uh, playing music in Beijing and playing in you know free jazz bands and um, you know kind of putting together shows uh, over there and I even had people sending me boxes of records that I would kind of sell uh, whenever I'd go out and DJ or whatever and. The whole thing was a trip. I, I can say that the my my biggest uh, the my proudest moment was uh, playing the uh, on my last show. I played the replacements. Fuck school on the air over there. So. <laughs> That's great. That's so great. They didn't stop me at the airport, so I figured I got away with it. Were you a, were you a drummer back then as well? Were you? Uh, yeah, I, I, I did play drums over there quite a bit. I mean, I, what was really cool about Beijing and, and probably a lot of the bigger cities, uh, a lot of people uh, don't necessarily drive and going to clubs or bars, they have like all of their back line there. So like as a drummer, y you know that there's going to be a drum set on stage at almost all these clubs and you're kind of able to kind of mm. join people, sit in or put together shows. So a band that I had there, we would just kind of show up and um, play that to me was was worth the trip um, outside of you know just the job experience I didn't at a certain point I really didn't take the job experience too seriously because I could I could kind of tell nobody else did do you have any pictures and videos and photos of of your time there yeah I do I have a YouTube channel um, which is just my name uh, Danny Sigelman and uh, I think I have a playlist on there of all the videos I made in China and that was another part of it was that my job was so easy I would uh, I kind of taught myself how to edit uh, video while I was on the air <laughs> while I was working I mean the, the 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 real reality is that we were kind of like window dressing. For them to feel like they were doing something, opening up to the rest of the world. Mm. They make things seem bigger and more important than they actually are. And behind it, it's very much like the Wizard of Oz. Um, you know, everything you see on TV from China, it isn't necessarily the majesty that you imagine it is. And so realizing that I'm kind of just here to be... A white guy. I mean, I had somebody. I when when I started there, I got really angry about something. It's like, how can you guys, you know, why why don't you let me say blah 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 blah? And and this woman, um, she was Brazilian. She said to me, Danny, your job here is to be the white guy, <laughs> and 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 it, it really made sense. I mean, that's not to say uh, my work wasn't appreciated, but a, a lot of times um, people kind of come and go there, and it's just up to 
the the staff there to kind of keep it all going and 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 she her her point was to just enjoy the ride you know you're not gonna like change everything uh the way you think it really should be and i mean there were people there was a woman that was like uh, a former bbc announcer that got there and she was all professional and ready to go and she was just like flabbergasted about the kind of mm. lack of professionalism that was going on there. So in a, in a weird way, it was kind of like a huge community radio station funded by the Communist Party. <laughs> so weird and so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I could write a... I, I feel like there's so many stories between myself and all the other people that I was working with that a, a really good book about the the that the media climate in china uh, could be really interesting and you've written a book and it's a book that's actually received a fair amount of critical acclaim here it's called heyday 35 years of music in minneapolis mm -hmm. and you wrote it with daniel corrigan who basically is the guy who takes pictures of music bands the legendary music bands in the twin cities and has so for decades now Tell me about the origin story of your involvement with um, this book, Hey Day. I called him uh, the original Instagrammer. You know, he he was taking <laughs> photos of, of music, very often being the only person in the venue um, at the time with the ability to do so with his camera. You know, I think our stories parallel quite a bit. One of our mantras uh, in terms of like, you know, being in the scene and doing this kind of work is that you always want to uh, look like you're supposed to be somewhere. You know, I, 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 I can't tell you how many times I've gotten, you know, better seats or just kind of walked into a club or whatever by by just kind of making it appear that I'm this is what I do. And I mean, it's a it's a. It's almost like that kind of uh, uh, you manifest your own uh, destiny in a lot of ways. Um, mm -hmm, and so with mm -hmm. Dan, I, I've always loved what he did. Uh, I think Dan's most well-known for some of the album covers he did in the 80s, The Replacements, The Soul Asylum. Uh, Husker Du uh, used him for uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, Dan was at a uh, there at a time and place when the Minneapolis music scene was really hopping. And um, being kind of on the front lines like he was... He was able to capture quite a bit and, and, and worked as a photographer professionally for many years. Um, and knowing what he had in his archive of, of photos, uh, I, um, I had this idea, you know, like, oh, he... And I, I think he'd attempted to do something similar. So I was at this event where, where Dan was showing off his photos, and uh, I met this guy, Josh, who works for the Minnesota Historical Society Press, and uh, Josh uh, said, yeah, I, I just love Dan's stuff. I've always loved what he does. You know, he's very well known. I've thought it would be so cool to do a book with this guy, but he, he, I haven't gotten much response for, from him. You know, I don't know if he doesn't use email or, you know, <laughs> I, you, know I, you have to kind of help me. And I said, Josh, I, I'm your man. I've had this idea for a long time as well. Um, I'm, I'm friends with Dan and, uh, you know, I think it, it, it might be a, a little bit of a level of trust, uh, thing. And with us kind of working and nudging him, you know, I think he'll, you'll, he'll give us the access and, you know, being a writer, uh, uh, once I came back from China, I really started covering music as a writer. I used my skills of interviewing as a writer, but also as a DJ to kind of get Dan out of his... Get, to really get them going and telling the stories that I wanted for all these photographs that we were finding. 
Yeah, I mean, it's incredible how much stuff he has, and uh, and eventually the book came out, and you know, I it was no surprise. It was really well received. Uh, I feel like it was kind of the beginning of a lot of uh, music books that have come out of the Twin Cities, uh, especially from the Minnesota Historical Society Press, and um, it's uh, it's been really cool. It was a, it was a, I, something I, I always thought would be uh, you know well received, and it, it really was. And uh, I feel like it kind of gave Dan a little bit of a notoriety that was maybe a little overdue. Um, but you know, to 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 say that his images from that time are synonymous with the Twin Cities is uh, you know an obvious thing to that could fill up. I mean, we could do more volumes. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, it was it was great, and it was it was hard to get him out of his shell initially. But then I think uh, it was very rewarding uh, to see him, you know, um, to get the praise that uh, maybe people hadn't really known whose pictures those were all this time, and to to have it in the book was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I read somewhere that there were tens of thousands of images and slides, some that he hadn't even seen that. I believe Josh went yeah. through to identify the ones that were potentials. That that became my job just as much as the writing was to go through all this stuff, and, and there's, a lot of it were on negatives. To find like the outtakes of the replacements, uh, "Let It Be" album cover oh. was really fun for me as, as as a fan. But then to also realize like, oh, there, this is all the work that went into the image that we know um, makes it super fun, and, and and also you know gives Dan a little bit of an opportunity to describe the process of how it came to be, um, especially considering that that wasn't his first choice. Yeah, there is thousands and thousands of pictures. And then, of course, when we were all done, he's like, oh, I found another box of pictures. You know, it's like, <laughs> come on, man. Where, where? Um, so, uh, yeah, who knows? I, I would love to say that maybe someday there'll be another uh, edition of that, uh, or, you know, an, a sequel to Heyday. That'd be great. Do, do you have a favorite photo? Well, there is a picture of the uh, from that Let It Be session that's a little more straight on from across the street, and uh, there the the Stinsons uh, had a dog uh, that was out on the rooftop, and uh, Bob Bobby's pretending like he's about to kick the dog off the roof. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of an evil shot, but it's just it, knowing the band and their sense of humor um, is definitely kind of one of my favorite pictures. Uh, the day. It, that's the replacements, right? Just to be clear, that, yeah. that's they were on the roof. That's the album cover. Yeah, the replacements. About. Let it be. Uh, there's another great photo from the Walker Art Center of David Byrne. That's like a profile shot. It's been a while since I've looked at it, but uh, yeah, there was so many great concert photos, and and then the ones that I'd never seen before, I guess, really stuck stuck out. There's a, a picture of the Clash playing at Roy Wilkins Auditorium that, um, or was it the St. Paul Civic Center? Maybe. Um, it's crazy because I. I have, uh, I, I, I think it really plays into what I love to do is to kind of unearth the ephemera of music and the music culture. Mm. And that's something I, I feel I do with DJing and, and um, bringing music over to China like that and kind of putting it in a different context. Um, Heyday really was, a, you know, really solidified my, my passion for that type of stuff. Kind of finding... Um, 
those those little nuggets uh, it, it like it's just like digging for records when you're going through bins and trying to find the the one thing that you know sparks your interest and turns out to be really cool uh it, it, to me it's very synonymous with kind of like the the project like that there was another book i worked on uh, I'm not the author of, but uh, I discovered this guy named Alan Bolio, and uh, we did a book with him at the Historical Society called uh, Before the Rain, and it's a, a book of Prince photos, and it, it was the same type of thing. I, I met this guy, and um, he'd been sitting for years on all these uh, really amazing Prince photos, and I, you know, I, I told him I, I don't need to be the author for this book, but I absolutely, as a fan. I feel it's my duty that uh, that <laughs> other people, fans, need to see this stuff, uh, not just for its historical importance, but just because it's really fun. It's so cool to, you know, see Prince eating a piece of French toast in the morning. <laughs> I don't know, you know, like like the it, 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 there's something to be said when you when you've been so deep in the trenches like this. It's those that the minutia. Of of uh, of of the music culture that that starts to fascinate me more than the real yeah. more, more than the obvious you know like the obvious hits mm -hmm. and and so maybe in a way working at a Minnesota Public Radio where it's a little tighter in terms of like having to um, uh, uh, cater to a, a certain um, style or sound or, or uh, uh, recognizability that 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 uh, isn't where my passion is it's really about kind of finding all the the nuggets and the in the essentially kind of the, the you know a little bit of behind the scenes stuff and and eventually I went on to kind of work more in presenting and so eventually I did kind of move on to kind of being a helping like present music a little more uh, and working at the Dakota Jazz Club. Um, and I've also uh, done some booking at the Minnesota Historical Society and I helped with their First Avenue exhibit um, and uh, also the Mill City Museum. And, you know, it's what I've been missing most uh, this during this quarantine was uh, the the not being present in music and in yeah. in the moment in the audience. Mm -hmm. um, that's 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 been really hard. What has the pandemic done to the music scene in Minneapolis and what are you doing right now and how how do you see it changing as we start to optimistically see the beginning of normal life at some point this year, I would guess? Well, I mean, that's really hard to say. I think all of us are going to kind of like jump back in in, a, in different ways. Um, I, I, I see myself hopefully getting back into presenting music uh but uh, being a drummer i've spent the last year really trying to perfect my 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 skills in uh, as a musician myself um so i could see doing that a little more uh but uh how are people gonna uh eventually feel comfortable enough to congregate I watch videos of huge concerts, you know, like the Foo Fighters playing at Wembley Stadium, and it just gives me the heebie-jeebies, you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I feel the same way. It's like... Uh, yeah, Metallica and wow. France or whatever. It's like, whoa! I I I wonder uh, if if people are gonna kind of tiptoe into it a little more. I could see uh, musicians and artists um, really maybe scaling down the necessity to have such high numbers in their audience. 
maybe the record or the the, uh, the the recorded music aspect has become more of a connection. I mean, uh, Taylor Swift is an obvious example of that. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe that's giving the recorded work a little bit more of a uh, cachet. Uh, I feel like in the last five years, live music has really been the bread and butter and so has been more of, more of the emphasis. I mean, there was a time the, the concerts and the tour promoted the record and then the record started promoting the tour that would happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now it's almost like both are kind of even because I don't think that like the huge, enormous festivals are really going to kick in until maybe later in the year or early next year. That kind of puts the emphasis on the artist a little bit to really uh, hone their craft and their vision about what they're doing. I think music gets turned into such a numbers game and having to have that popularity uh, quotient and and there's a, maybe a little bit more of a level playing field f- now that you know the limitations might still be in place for a little while. Yeah, I, don't know. I you know I miss going to shows though. I love going downtown with Susie and yeah, going to First Ave and seeing a band that I've never heard of come on before a band that I came to see and discovering music like that. I'm just worried that you know those shoulder to shoulder shows at First Ave are are not going to be back anytime soon. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, it's going to take a while. And then, it, you know, even if they do come back, are people going to be willing to to, to go into that? I, I don't know. Um, it, it, I think there's there's going to be another layer of innovation on the artist's part to to connect to the audience uh, mm. that, that, that I'm excited about. I don't know what it necessarily will be, but... Uh, you know, is it a pop-up? Is it a hybrid of like being able to watch a band that's in town, and 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 then are the tickets only going to go to the the highest paid bidder? I I mean, I hate. I hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, we'll just have to see. I I like to think that the possibility for the artist to to really do more of what they want is there. It's just more about having the ability to present it, uh, either in a venue or online. Hopefully there's going to be a lot of great new music coming out uh, yeah. since everybody's been holed up during this time. Yeah, a year of forced creativity for all the musicians. Yeah, and, and there's always been kind of the joke that in, in, Minneapolis, in the Twin Cities, the, the, the music is so good because people are kind of holed up uh, for so long during the winter, and then the springtime <laughs> comes about, and everybody's got their new releases. I mean, no, I think it's. I think there's some truth to that. Uh, yeah. And now the whole world has kind of experienced that in a, in a way. Yeah, yeah. Are you looking forward to anything particular that's coming up? Well, man, it's such a bummer. I, I was really looking forward to my first concert, uh, the Bad Plus. Uh, are uh, the kind of modern jazz trio uh, have been around for about 20 years and I used to present them at the Dakota all the time and I'm a, a friend of Dave King uh, the drummer who's one of the best drummers in the world they announced a show and then like five days later it got canceled so I don't know I don't oh know what's next <laughs> yeah uh, but but uh, uh, I, I did see that hinterland festival is happening in Iowa in August, um, and uh, I did see that First Avenue announced Dinosaur Junior uh, in September. Really? Se- yeah, in September. Oh, and, I mean, that, that's a that's a band I've probably seen a hundred times, but I'll be yeah. probably might might be my favorite time ever seeing them. Yeah, that Dinosaur Junior. I think I saw saw them in um, Hyde Park or 
Nice. Somewhere in London, when I when Susie and I were there, we just happened to be in a in the right place at the right time, and were able to see them play live. It was great. It was so great. Nice. Yeah. So it 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 I, you know what I really miss, especially in Minneapolis, is the block parties. Uh, the kind of small you know the bar. Every bar has a block party at some point during the summer, and I realized how much of my network of friends and people that I see continually. Uh, are through the music scene and that without that standard in my life, without that habit, that continual habit of, of going to see music, uh, you really do feel disconnected and uh, it, it, having to make effort to see people um, that I normally would see all the time was was pretty daunting. Um, and, and, you know, those are those are just like the casual faces in the crowd. You really start to realize that you relied on to, to kind yeah. of bond in that way. I'm looking more forward to that almost than anything, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah. I, I can't believe the, the time has gone so quickly. It's just been great talking to you and talking about the music scene in Minneapolis and your experience with it and... I just uh, am so grateful that you came on the show and I appreciate all the time you spent with me today. It's just been yeah. awesome talking to you, Danny. Oh, thanks so much. You'll have to say uh, hi to Susie and the gang for me and and and, and uh, promise that once things open up, I get to DJ another party at your house. You know what? You're the guy that will call when that happens, for sure. It'll be great. <laughs> right It'll on, man. Right on. Thanks. With me today was Danny Sigelman, author, DJ, drummer, freelance journalist, and so much more. You can find him on Twitter as paper underscore sleeves and on Instagram as paper sleeves. You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thanks for listening.